Let's take our Bibles this morning, John chapter 21. John chapter 21. And I want our members to look around you. If their neighbor next to you or somebody new to the church doesn't have a Bible, you be a kind Christian and share your Bible with them. If they don't have a King James Version of the Bible, please share your Bible with them so they're in the right translation as we follow through the Scriptures this morning. And uh, this might possibly be the last or second to last message from John. And we've been in this for about a year under the theme, Nothing But the Truth. And uh, today we're going to look at, uh, zone in on just a, a meeting Jesus had with Simon Peter, and I pray it will encourage all of our hearts. John chapter 21. Now, I want to get a little bit of interaction this morning, so I'm going to read the odd number verses. I'd like for you to read the even number verses, and we're going to read from verses 15 to 22. So I'm going to read odd, you're going to read even. We get to the very last verse, verse 22, we'll read it together. We, all, we good with that? Amen? Amen. What, what are you supposed to read? Who said odd? You're in trouble, Jenny. You better talk to your wife, brother. <laughs> okay. All right, we had to have that just to loosen things up. All right, verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he, that is Jesus, saith unto him, Feed my lambs. Congregation, verse 16. He saith to him again, He saith unto him the third time. Now, how many men understand if your wife has to ask you three times do you love her, you're in trouble, amen? Yeah, okay, didn't hear a lot of amens from the guys. Ladies, you better say amen to that, amen? Trying to help your marriage this morning. <laughs> he saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Congregation, verse 18. Verily, verily. This spake he, signifying by which death, by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, Follow me, congregation. Then Peter, and Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? And altogether, verse 22. And Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. I want you to underline some verses this morning, some thoughts. I want you to notice um, verses 15, 16, 17, where Jesus said, Lovest thou me? Would you like to underline that, please, if you haven't done that before? And then in verse 15, he said, More than these. I'd like you to underline where he says in those verses, Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. I'd like you to go to verse 19. I'd like you to underline the, the two words, follow me. And then I'd like you to notice verse 20. Again, we won't get into this today. I'd like you to underline a, a phrase that says, The disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast. Would you underline that? That might be the seed thought for maybe one more message. Then I want you to notice verse 21, or verse 22, excuse me. Follow thou me. Our title this morning comes out of verses 16, 15, 16, and 17. And Jesus asked what would seem a simple question. It was very hard. We would paraphrase it this way. Peter... Do you love me? I mean, Peter, do you really love me? 
I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you love Jesus? Do you really love Jesus? Do you love him more than these? For just a minute, let's look what Jesus did for Peter and how that transformed Peter's life. And let's see this morning what Jesus can do for you and how that can transform your life. Father, thank you for the reading of the word of God. The psalmist said, the entrance of thy word giveth light. He also said, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He prayed a prayer. He said, order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Father, this morning we've looked at a mirror. We've looked at the mirror of your word. And the mirror doesn't lie. The mirror doesn't hold back any punches. It reveals and discloses to us exactly who we are, what we are in the eyes of God. At the same time, thank you that through your word, you give us comfort, you give us instruction, you give us wisdom. And we pray today that you'd sanctify us through your truth because your word is truth. We pray that you'll do a great and mighty work in our hearts that we need that we would hear and that we would listen and that, Lord, we'd even imagine you just speaking to us at the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Father, would you bless our time together? Would you speak to us and change our lives? I pray for any here today who are not certain about where they'll spend eternity, that before they leave this room this morning, they would be moved by the compulsion of the Holy Spirit to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. I pray for every Christian this morning who's at a place in life, and we all will be there, just like Peter was at, and seeing what God you're able to do. Would you do the same work in our hearts? And thank you for what you'll do in us. We give you the praise and the glory in this. We pray all these things in the matchless, wonderful, powerful name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of God's people say, amen. amen. You may be seated. I want to draw your attention this morning on the back room, because we have several people who are new to our church this morning, and some of you kind of come intermittently. John 21 takes us at the place several days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus has appeared twice to his disciples. The first occasion we read of is on the same evening, the same night, the same day in which he rose again from the dead. The disciples were assembled together in an upper room in a house. The door was closed. Jesus walked right through those doors as he came into them. He, they saw him bodily. They saw the wounds in his hands and the wounds in his feet. And Jesus greeted them by saying, Peace be unto thee. And the Bible tells us that during that time he ate a meal with them, and they were all glad together that they saw the Lord. The second time the Lord appeared to them, again in that same upper room, if you can imagine it, crammed together about 120 disciples or so. He came came eight days later, but during that first time, one of the disciples by the name of Thomas was not present. Thomas was a skeptic. Thomas said to the other disciples, I don't believe what you've told me. He said, if I, don't, if I, I, I need to touch his hands, I need to touch his feet, I need to put my hand in the side where he was pierced, I need to see physical proof that Jesus rose him from the dead. And on that eighth time, that second time he came on the eighth day later, Thomas was there. When Thomas beheld the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus showed him his hands, Jesus showed him his side, and he said, reach forth and touch me. And Thomas replied, my Lord and my God. Jesus had appeared to them. He showed without any shadow of doubt that he was the risen Son of God, that he was God Almighty, that he was the God of all truth, that he was the God of all comfort. He's the God who's eternal. He's the God who's sinless. And he was a God who died for their sins. But now several more days have passed, and those disciples who had been assembled together there in Jerusalem in that upper room, those men traveled back from Jerusalem 80 miles back up to the area of Galilee, which they were from. Those disciples, you have to remember, were Galileans. They wanted to go back to where they were familiar. They wanted to go back because their hearts were hurting. With the exception of John, all those other men were not present when Jesus died. And so they were feeling a sense of remorse and regret and embarrassment as far as their, what their, their discipleship was concerned and in terms of the depth of their love for Jesus. 
And we find the occasion here, if you look at John 21, we spent some time on this last week. They're on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you've ever been to a lake area where you've gone camping or a place where you've gone boating and things like that, you just can imagine in your mind the rippling of the waters. And I want you to imagine maybe somewhere like Lake Tahoe, a very large lake with a very, that has a very great depth and a lake that's very well known for its fishing. It was the hub of the Galilean community. I mean, the whole economy of Galilee was built around the Sea of Galilee, sometimes called the Sea of Tiberias. It was a fisherman's trade. It was a great fishing community. It was a place where every morning, predictably, fishermen would get their, they were, their nets would be ready, their fishing boat vessels would be ready, and they would launch out in the evening. They would get everything ready, they'd launch out at night. And you could imagine there in the evenings that the, the entire lake area was just clustered with fishermen, commercial fishermen, who were very expert in knowing the exact locations where to drop their nets. They had fishermen that they were not dropping lines, they were dropping nets. They knew where to drop it, and on a successful night, these men would come back with a haul of fishes, and, and the courses. they made their way, there would be these merchants who would be on the shoreline, and the merchant, merchants there would look out, and they'd say something like this, have you any meat? Have you any meat? Have you caught anything there? And of course, there was music to the ears of the fishermen coming in, because they liked to say, yes, we did, and we do have something here. And of course, that would take care of the day's trade, because those men would meet them very early in the morning, just as the sun was coming up. Those men would be at the shoreline. They would greet. They would bargain with the fishermen. They'd buy the fish, and then the fish would be distributed all around the Galilean communities for sale uh, to the people who would come to buy it. So you just imagine the hub of activity and the greatness of the beaches and the shorelines there of the Sea of Galilee, just, just, a, just a cluster of people and, and thriving with activity and things of that nature. And with that kind of a background, we see John 21, where Peter and, and the disciples, six other disciples, six other men, that Peter makes this, 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 this statement that's just kind of out of the blue. He says, I go fishing. And what Peter was saying from that when we, we saw last week was that Peter was making some regression. He was going backwards in his faith. He, was, he had been called of God to be a fisher of men, not a, going back to fishing as a trade, and to trust Jesus Christ by faith that he would take care of him. And Peter had been called to be a preacher of the gospel and a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. But Peter, because there was remorse in his heart that he denied our Savior just a few weeks before at, on the eve of his crucifixion, he denied Jesus three times. He stood himself at a fire and been around the, the, the priests and the, the servants of the, of, the, of the priest's house. He assembled himself. He kind of just tried to merge in with them, pretend he was just like one of them. But they saw right through that. And, and uh, at Peter, on the third time, he denied the Lord Jesus Christ. The cock crew. And remember very vividly, burning in his heart and mind, what the Lord Jesus Christ said. He said, Peter, before this night is over, you will have denied me three times. And we hear the cock crow. You remember that. And Luke tells us that when, 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 when Peter denied him, he looked up and his eyes caught hold with Jesus. He locked on the eyes of Jesus. Somehow that moment of time Jesus had come out of the, the high priest, out of that chamber he was in of the, whole, of the palace of the high priest, and he came down, and just at that moment of time, again only Jesus could have orchestrated that. Their eyes locked on each other, and the Bible says Peter went out, and he wept bitterly. You have to remember that Peter at this moment of time is a preacher of the gospel, a pastor in the making, a Bible college student, a disciple of Jesus Christ, whose heart is hurting. He's broken inside because he's thinking of all the biggest blunders I could have made, of all the greatest disappointments I could have made in my life, I made the biggest one. I denied my Savior just like he said I would. I shamelessly told people I did not know Jesus Christ. I shamelessly told lost people that needed the Savior I did not know him. I denied him in my words. I denied him by my actions. I denied him in terms of what I was. And so Peter's feeling this great sense of remorse because Jesus heard his words and Jesus locked his eyes on Peter. And Peter's thinking, man, I really blew it. And Peter couldn't get away from it. And so the sorrow caught up with him. Even though he'd seen the resurrected Christ, and even though he poked his head inside the tomb and saw that Christ had risen from the dead, Peter could not get over the fact that he had failed in his discipleship with God. And we see last week where after a disappointing night where they caught nothing, Seven men, experts in fishing, knowing the waters of Galilee, knowing exactly where the, where the fish would be biting. And I almost think comically that God allowed fish to come into the net and come right out of the net. You know, kind of like dropping your line, and you thought you caught it, but it got away. 
And I can almost calmly think the fish coming up against it and, and jumping up into the boat and jumping right back into the water. You know, things like that that God would do just to kind of amuse them. Because I think our God has a sense of humor with us sometimes too. And as they're making their way back to the shoreline, disgusted with themselves, defeated, feeling like failures. You ever been there before? Felt like a failure? A voice cries out, children, young and mature ones, neophytes, men who are still growing. You never said that to a fisherman because they were pretty rugged. Children, have you any meat? And they didn't recognize it was the Lord. And so they're just, you know, they're just consumed with their failure in themselves. And Jesus says, cast your net on the right side. Now, normally, fishermen are not good at taking advice because you don't tell a fisherman what to do. And when he said those words, perhaps in their minds there was deja vu. They're thinking back, hey, didn't this happen three years ago? We launched off our boat from the shore, and we'd walk, we fished all night and caught nothing. And the master came along. And he said, cast your nets, plural, on the other side. And Peter said, Lord, we fished all night. We caught nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, we'll cast the net. In other words, Peter said, really, I don't really don't agree with you, Lord. And what do you know about fishing? Because you're a carpenter by trade. And what do you really know about fishing there? And, but Peter said, because you're the Lord, I'll, I'll drop one net. He said, I'll partially obey you. I'll partially do what you want me to do. I'll drop one net. And as he dropped the net, the Bible says that a great haul of fishes came in the word. The Bible uses the word draft. And draft means a great haul of fishes. So, and so great was that haul of fishes, the, bo the boat almost tipped over into the water, and uh, the net almost broke, and they couldn't pull it in. And they're thinking back, did this happen to us three years ago? This is something like, this sounds very interesting. And as soon as they dropped the net, I mean, the fish just made their way into the net. I mean, it's just like God was holding the fish back. And then as soon as the net got in the water, God said, okay, fish, I want you to go in the net. And the Bible describes that a great number of fish were caught in that net. In fact, the Bible says 153 of them. I don't know about you, but if I went fishing today, that was a great fishing day, Amen. You know, 153 of all kinds, they said, were great fishes. They were heavy fishes. They were big fishes. I'm talking about perhaps the catch of the, probably the catch of the year. They had enough fish to sell to the merchants that were on the shoreline that they could have taken care of them for several weeks on. And uh, as they got to, as soon as that happened, John took a look again. He took a very careful look and he started thinking, those words sound familiar and the command sounds familiar. And immediately John said, it's the Lord. As soon as Peter heard, heard that, he recognized that God was all in, in all this. Now, that's the story as we get to this passage of Scripture, because we're going to see here where God is working, the Lord Jesus Christ is working in the heart of one man. And as he works in the heart of one man, he's going to work in all the other disciples' hearts, because Peter feels like you and I feel at moments of times when we're disgusted with ourselves, when we feel like we've failed God, we felt like we haven't done enough for the Lord, we feel like we've gotten away from the Lord. And maybe I'm talking to somebody here tonight, you are this morning, you are struggling your faith. You've not had a great Bible reading time for, for weeks on end. You, the Bible's not making sense to you. It's been a long time since you've had a time of prayer where you sense the presence of God in your life. It's been a long time since you've been down the aisle to just spend some time with God after a message where God's speaking to you. It's been a long time since you've seen some food in yourself. And the honest truth of the matter is, is you feel miserable. You feel disjointed. You feel disconnected with the church and disconnected with people. You feel disconnected with your pastor. You feel disconnected with God. You feel like you're not connected with everything, and while you're excited that other people are involved and excited about a friend day and a Thanksgiving banquet and Christmas musicals and all that, in your heart of hearts, you're feeling disgusted and ashamed of yourself that you're not really where you need to be. Or maybe you're somebody here today that maybe you made a blunder and you hurt your testimony for Jesus Christ and you were mis misunderstood and you're feeling like, man, I blew it with my neighbor, I blew it with my coworkers, I blew it with my schoolmates, I blew it with my family, and how am I going to have face with them again? And you're de dealing with all these things. And all of us get this place in our lives where we feel Feel this sense of spiritual failure. And you know what? When spiritual failure sets in, you feel like you have fallen so bad, you don't think there's any place for you to be restored. And I want to give you hope and encouragement this morning because we look at the Apostle Peter, and I want you to notice what's going to happen today. As we look at Peter, beginning in verse 15, it's our Lord Jesus Christ taking a failed fishing incident and making this as an opportunity of transforming Peter's life, of getting Peter restored, of getting Peter revived, and getting Peter recommissioned. We're going to see Peter revived. We're going to see Peter restored. And we're going to see Peter recommissioned. 
And I'm going to urge you this morning, if you're somebody like Peter, where you've gone to fishing, you've gone out of the will of God, and you've gotten away from the Lord, you're not as close as you thought you should be, and you're not as close as you should be, and you're not just exactly there, I've got good hope for you this morning, because we have a Savior who's patiently waiting for you. And we have a Savior who's standing on that shoreline, who's going to give you and me good instruction and good direction, so we can come back to the Lord and find help for our time of need. We have a Savior here who's interested in reviving us uh, and re-engaging us and recommissioning us to do the work of the Lord. I want you to see three things this morning, what God did, what Jesus Christ did in the life of Simon Peter at this time, of how he restored someone who had gotten away from him. God can restore you too. Number one, would you notice in verse seven, we see an awakened faith. In verse seven, we go back to the, 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 that morning of a failed fishing expedition. And uh, as soon as they caught the fish in verse 6, where Jesus gave them the command to catch the fish. And the Bible says in verse 7 that when they, they, they cast their, verse 6, they cast their four, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. I want you to imagine instantaneously, in just a matter of seconds, their net was dropped. It's filled with fishes. Fishers are tugging at the net. The boat's almost feeling like it's, it's heaving on one side. They're filling the pole of the fishes. There's a splashing of the water. In fact, there may have even been some fish that probably popped into the boat and actually stayed in the boat or popped back out. I mean, this great haul of fish has come in. These fishermen had not experienced anything of that magnitude. They had never seen a night of success as great as that morning success as they did. In fact, it defied all of what they were used to because a great catch normally appeared, happened at night before the sun appeared. And this catch happened while the sun had risen up. The sun was risen. The morning dawn was there. They could see clearly on the shoreline. Something happened that they were not used to. And the Bible also tells us something else. They were about a hundred yards from land. The Bible says they were 200 cubits from land, which is about a hundred yards from land. And they're filling this hall of catches. The weight of the fish is there. And it's immediately that moment of time we see in verse 7 where Jesus Christ is starting a process and working in the heart of Simon Peter. And notice verse 7. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith to Peter. Now, one thing that stands out to you and I as we look at this passage this morning is that John, John made a lot of mistakes in his way too, but John still loved Jesus, and Jesus loved John. And Jesus loved, loved him such a way that John just had, was the only one that came to the cross and was there, and John was the one who was the second one into the tomb, and he stuck his head in and he walked in there, but the Bible says he saw and he believed, and he had faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter, John, was, John is growing now, and John is recognizing as he got right with the Lord Jesus Christ, he looks, he realizes, you know what, this, is, this doesn't happen by chance. And this is not some, as, as the New Agers would say, this isn't we had good karma. And this isn't luck that we had here. This was the Lord working in life. Let me tell you something today. Sometimes you, you may mistakenly think that what happened in your life was good luck and it was sometimes with good fortune. And you might mistakenly think, you might accept the terms of the New Agers and think that, well, this is good karma. But let me tell you, if you're a child of God and you're trying to live for the Lord, everything that happens in your life, that's God working in you. That's the providence of God working on your behalf. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Don't even look at a confinement to a hospital. Don't even look like a cancer diagnosis or any of those things as being, you've got bad luck or bad misfortune. You just be thankful today that there's a God in heaven who loves you and he loves you enough that he's testing you and putting you to work to do something great in your heart and do something great in my heart. And so John is awakening here in verse 7. And John says here, he says, it's the Lord. That's all he had to say, it's the Lord. He said, it's God who's at work here. It's God who provided the fish. It's God who's doing this. Let me tell you this morning, if you're here today, it's because it's it's the Lord. If you're Savior today, it's because it's the Lord. If you've seen answers to prayer, it's because it's the Lord. If the music touched your heart this morning, it's because it's the Lord. If God is going to work in your heart today, if you're not saved to get saved today, it's the Lord who's doing that. If God's going to give us a great friend day next Sunday and this coming week of a harvest of souls getting saved, it's got to be of the Lord. Listen, we married a young couple yesterday. James and Natalie got married. We're so thankful for them. Just thinking about how God brought them to the church and grew them. I still remember the day when Natalie got saved as a young young teenager. But I'm going to tell you, as I told them yesterday, I said, it's the Lord who brought you together. It's the Lord who will bless your marriage. It's the Lord who will build your home. It's the Lord who will give you the love that you need to have for each other. And brother and sister in Christ, I want to tell you today, it's not a life of fame. It's not a life of luck. It's not a life of fortune. It's, a, it's the fact that we have the Lord that's working on our behalf today. And so when he said that, notice it awakened Peter. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. You know, an awakened faith begins with a stirring of our hearing. He that heareth, that hath an ear, 
Let him hear. We need to listen to the word of God. We should not allow our hearts to drift off somewhere. We should not turn a deaf ear to the word of God. We should not be selective hearers to the word of God. He that hath an ear, let him hear, the Bible says. And Peter, when he heard that was the Lord, it awakened him. Mind you, today we need an awakened faith. You see, Peter was someone where his light was dimming out, and he was greatly in need of revival. And you know, revival is when life returns to something that is dying or diminishing. It is like a car battery that has died out and it needs recharging. But man, once you recharge it, it's got life again. It can run a car. It's like a balloon where the air has slowly gotten out of that balloon. It's deflated. But you blow that balloon back up again and it retains that, 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 that ability to rise above the air there. It's like a marriage that's been lifeless and without passion, being re-energized. And with a renewed zeal and love, this couple love each other. Peter was stirred in his hearing. Brother and sister in Christ, we need to hear. We need to listen. I reminded the story of a of an older man, an older woman, they'd gotten up in age there, and they were having some, one of them was having hearing problems, and so the husband went up to his wife one day, she was working in the kitchen, she's just busy getting some things ready and preparing things, so he said, well, you know, my wife, I think, has some hearing problems, so I'm going to go up to her and try to help her out today, so he stands at the side there, and uh, he's, he's about, probably about 15 feet from her, and he says, honey, can you hear me? And there was no response. And so he got a little closer. He got about seven feet to her. And he said, honey, can you hear me? And still there was no response. Finally, he got up right up to her ear. And he said, honey, can you hear me? And she replied to him, for the third time, yes, I can hear you. <laughs> a lot of us are like that. We think somebody else can't hear. And really, we're the one that has a hearing problem. Amen. And Peter heard it was the Lord. The stirring of his hearing stirred his faith. You see, brother and sister Christ, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Oh, listen, for preacher or pastor, they look forward to Sundays. They die for Sundays. They look forward to being with God's people and preaching God's word. For preachers of the gospel, they die to preach God's word and to get to an audience wherever they can. And people who love God's word, they love to assemble and be there day after day and week after week to hear God's word. Peter was stirred in his hearing. May I say to you this morning, listen to the small voice of God when he speaks to you. Listen to the audible voice of God when he speaks to you. Listen to the voice of God if he calls you to do something for him. Listen to the voice of God when he gives you command. An awakened faith begins by a stirring of our hearing. But notice something else in verse 7. An awakened faith also occurs because we're stimulated in our heart. The Bible says, now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, would you notice what he did? He girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. Now, first of all, he wasn't stark naked. When the Bible used the word naked, it means he took his outer garment off, and the only thing he had on was his, was, was his inner garment, which we would call that today our underwear. He was still modestly dressed. It's just he didn't have his outer garment on. And he'd wore on that, on that fishing vessel what was described as a fisher's coat. And perhaps because it was bulky and perhaps because they had caught nothing that night, he took it off as the sun was coming up. But as soon as he heard the words, it's the Lord from John, Peter was stimulated in his heart because Peter recognized if it's the Lord, he says, man, I've got to present myself. Lord, listen, Peter at that moment of time was tired of the running and Peter was tired of avoiding Christ and Peter was tired of not listening to the Lord and Peter was tired of doing it his way and Peter was tired of being distant from Christ and as soon as he heard there was the Lord, it's kind of like, it's kind of like if I can use the example, it's kind of like, um, think, of, think of a serviceman who goes away on a tour of duty for a year's time, and he's separated from his wife and his children, and they've kept in communication as best they can by cell phone or other communications, and they've written each other, and they, if they can, they text each other, and they write each other, and there's, this, there's these moments of tension they both have because this conflict happens. She's wondering, is my husband alive? And he's wondering, oh, I can't wait to get home to see my wife. And then the day comes when he's, about, he's allowed to go home for a time of, uh, to rejoin his family, to be with them, and can you imagine 
imagine as they make, they, they completed this tour of duty, he comes back on the airplane, and she, with the children, like many other wives, they're waiting there at the airport, and can you imagine, they're looking for their loved one, and there this wife is patiently waiting, she's been, she's been away from her husband for a year's time, they've, it's been a one year since they've kissed each other, one year since they've embraced each other, one year since they've had a very decent conversation with each other, the children haven't seen each other, haven't seen their daddy, and the mother's been telling the child, the children, oh, daddy's coming home, and daddy's coming home, and listen, when daddy comes home, we're going to embrace daddy. We're going to have a great time. And we only got daddy for maybe three weeks. We're going to make the most of him. We're going to spend time together. I'm going to make daddy's favorite meal. And we're going to go for our walks. And we're going to go for a drive. And then the moment comes as those soldiers are disembarking off that plane. And they're coming up one another. Here's the first one. He's looking, scanning around. He sees his wife. He runs. They embrace each other. There's tears coming down their eyes. And they're crying. And they're hugging. And they're kissing. And the children get around. They're hugging daddy's leg and hugging daddy's neck. And they're just loving. But here's this man. He's coming down. When his heart is beating, he's saying, man, I've only been buried for about a couple months, and I've been away from my wife for one year, but man, they latch on each other, and she, she sees him, and she says something like this. She says, Johnny, and he looks, and he says, Becky, and they know each other's voice, and man, they just hear that voice. There's something about the tone of their voice that they know of each other, and the sound of their voice that attracts them each other, and they run to each other, and embrace, and they, they can't wait to get to each other. I mean, if there's ever a race they would ever exceed, the time limit would be right there. Listen, that's exactly what's going on in this situation. Peter hears, it's the Lord that's there, and Peter Peter's thinking his heart, I can't wait to see the Lord. I can't wait to be with Jesus. Now, he wasn't like that at the first appearance, and he wasn't like that in the second appearance, but on the third appearance, Peter is stimulating his heart. He's stirred up inside of him. He's stimulated. He's provoked. He wants to get to the Lord, and so he puts the fisher's coat in, and he does something that is different than he normally would do. He jumps into the water. Look at verse 7. The Bible says he cast himself into the water. Now, why did he do that? Because Peter would swim to shore. Now, I don't know how strong a swimmer Peter was before that, but on that day, they would recruit him for the U.S. Olympic team. Amen? Because he, would have, he went from that boat, from that boat all the way to shoreline. He swam 100 yards. How many understand even running 100 yards is a lot of work? Amen? Swimming 100 yards is a lot. Isn't that right, Miss Jenny? Miss Jenny's a swimmer, and she's a, she's a, she's a you, you rescue worker or something like that. You rescue people that are, that, that are drowning there, and uh, you, you have to be a strong swimmer there. I hope, I hope I'm never drowning there. You might leave me under the water there, but, you know, anyway. But anyway, uh, you know, but I'm just saying today, they, uh, they uh, you know, the Peter jumped that water, and he's swimming out to Jesus, and he wants to be with Jesus, and I imagine him swimming very vigorously and with all his effort. Hey, listen, today, when you're awake in your faith, you want to get to Jesus Christ. You're waking your faith. You want to get back into your prayer time. You're waking your faith. You want to get back and have a sweet time in the Word of God. You're waking your faith. You can't wait to tell people about what Jesus did for you and to witness of your faith. When you're awakened in your faith, you're moved in your heart. You can't wait to tell people, oh, how I love Jesus Christ. We've seen awakened faith. Would you notice the second thing this morning? Notice we now go to verse 15. And we see an ardent fervency. When you're revived, when you're restored, your faith is awakened. But that fire which was diminishing in your heart starts to blaze and burn again. Peter got an ardent fervency. Fervency refers to your enthusiasm, your passion, and your zeal. For someone or something. Peter had his passion and love for Jesus Christ re-energized on that boat. And as he was swimming back to shore. And I want you to see some things that transpires here about an ardent fervency. Because maybe this morning, if, if it's affected you, where you're not as on fire for Christ... And as fervent as it used to be, my encouragement to you this morning, my prayer for you today, is you'd get that ardent, fiery fervency, that burning fervency for Christ like you had before. And maybe if you don't really know what that is, maybe today might be the day that God's going to light a fire under you and get you burdened and excited for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice what happened to Peter. How did, well, how did, how did, Peter, how did Peter demonstrate this ardent fervency? We'll go back to verses 10 and 11. And the first thing we see is that with an ardent fervency, you become extraordinary in your labor. When you have an ardent fervency, when you're, when you're on fire for God, you are extraordinary in your labor. Now, Peter's swimming to shore. He's made his way to shore when we get to verse 10. Peter's standing there. He's dripping wet. I want you to imagine this. He's dripping wet. He swam 100 yards. He's probably tired. He's probably trying to catch his breath. He's dripping wet. He's just standing there on the shore. And I almost imagine he's probably like this. <sighs> 
that was a great swim, but man, I'm next to Jesus. And as he's barely getting his breath together, notice what happens here. The other disciples come behind him. And by the way, this is kind of interesting. He outswam the boat, and he, and he outswims him. The Bible says in verse 89 that the other disciples made their way there, and they were dragging the net behind the fishing vessel, this vessel that was filled with all these fish there. And as they got there, they came to, they targeted on a location because they could see there that there was a fire of coals, a large fire of coals that was burning there, and they could smell something very familiar to them. They could smell a Galilean breakfast. I remember the first time I went to the Philippines with Brother Tick Medina. I brought brother, brother Tick with me. I said, Brother Tick, I want you to kind of help me out through things. We're going to be with Brother Lorena. And I said, it's me my first time there. And I just want to get, get kind of acclimate. I want a good running start. And he said, I'll tell you how we're going to have a good running start. He says, just meet me in the lobby, Pastor, in the morning for, for morning breakfast. And, of course, we're one of these hotels where they got these, you know, they, they, everywhere in Asia, they've got these, these buffet, buffet breakfasts. I've never seen anything like that before. And Brother Tick got his meal. And I only noticed in the first, on the first plate he got, he only had three items there. There was some fruit. There was some rice and fish. And this is what Brother Tick me. He said, Brother, he said, Pastor, there's nothing like coming back home because in the Philippines, breakfast for us is, is fish and rice. And I started saying, man, well, I'm going to get used to this too, amen. I'm going to have fish and rice every way too. And so he, for Brother Tick, it became a very familiar sight. He did that every day. And that's what's happened to these men here. They're seeing this coal of fire. They're seeing the smoke come up. There's this wonderful aroma of fried fish. This is wonderful aroma of bread being seared on the coals there. And they're thinking, man, we've been there before. The best of all is Jesus preparing that breakfast for them. How many believe today that Jesus is the best chef you could ever have, amen? How many believe today Jesus can cook a better meal than anybody you can imagine, amen? And Jesus preparing that Galilean breakfast for them. There's this fried fish. I'm not talking fish and chips. I'm talking about fried fish. I'm talking about real fish. I'm talking about Jesus fish. Amen. There's this fish going on there. And it's, I'm not talking about this fish and chip stuff. I'm not talking fish that's going to burn. I'm not talking fish in a foil. I'm talking about the only kind of fish Jesus made. He lost no skin there. There, I believe that the fish he got, there were no bones, so they didn't have to spit any bones out. Amen. I do believe they had the right kind of breakfast there, and they're smelling it. These hungry men, they've been out all night, and they smell this fish burning there, and they smell it, this fish that's being cooked there, and they, the bread that's there. And Peter's there. He's not, he's not, he's, he wants to eat breakfast, but he's waiting to see what happens. And verse 9 says, and as soon as they were come to land, all of them are there now. Now, they're all there on shore. The, the, the other six disciples and Peter and Jesus is there, and, they, and, and their eyes are on this fire of coals, and the fish laid there on a the bread. And Jesus issues a command. While he's there in verse 10, he gives this command. He says, bring of the the fish which you now have caught. And he says, I want you to produce what you've done there on the water. Bring of the fish which you've caught. Now the Bible describes this catch as being a full of great fishes, 153, and so many that the net was not broken. Now a lot of times we read verse 11 and we get focused on the magnitude of the fish, and that's great. What I want you to notice is that how it affected Peter. Because Peter has gotten revived in his heart. And Peter swam to shore to be with Jesus. And Peter was not ashamed to let the other six know, you guys can stay in the boat, I'm making my way to Jesus. And you guys can stay there, but I'm putting my fisherman's coat on. I'm making a beeline. I'm going to get to Jesus as fast as I can. Peter's revived his heart. And Peter's made his way to the shoreline. And there he's on the shoreline. And he's there with Jesus. And he's kind of going like this. And Jesus says, hey, bring in the fish which you've caught. And would you notice Peter did what he does in verse 11? Simon Peter went up. Simon Peter went to the boat and he goes to the boat and this net filled with fishes and all tied up and he pulls it together and I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he dragged it this way or if he put it over his shoulder. It doesn't really matter. The Bible says that Peter went there and he drew the net to land full of great fishes. Now, what he did required numerous men to carry and drag that net. Peter did it all by himself. Can I tell you something this morning? When you get revived, when you get stirred up for Jesus Christ, there's some extraordinary things you'll do for Jesus. You'll knock on more doors than you've knocked on before. And you'll pray longer than you've prayed before. And you'll engage in days of prayer and fasting like you never did before. And you'll be at church more often than you ever did before. And you'll be in that Bible more often than you ever did before. And you'll be kinder than you ever were before. And you'll love people more than like you ever did before. And you'll do extraordinary things. Peter did some extraordinary labor. He did something great. He dragged an entire net filled with great fishes all by himself. A net filled with 153 great fishes. Now thank God for that. But Peter said, you know what? I'm going to do more than pull my own weight. I'm going to pull more than my weight. I'm going to encourage you today. Don't be a Christian who just clocks in and clocks out. Don't be a Christian who just does what's commanded of you. Do more than pull your weight. Be somebody extraordinary in your labor. Be somebody who does more than others. Be somebody who goes the second mile, the third mile, the fourth mile. Be somebody that will get up, even if you've been stoned, and get back and go right back into the city of Lystra and to confront those people that stoned you. Be someone that's forgiving, even though you feel like the people that hurt you are unforgiving. I'm just saying today, when you are awakened in your faith, you are extraordinary in your labor. 
We see something else about Peter here. This ardent fervency, this incredible labor. Notice the second thing. Not only when you have this ardent fervor for the Lord are you, are you extraordinary in your labor, would you notice something else here? You'll be exclusive in your love. Do you notice verses 15 to 17? These men have finished eating. The Bible starts off verse 15. So when they had dined, and I just can imagine, it was kind of like a, if you're going camping with people, people sit around together, and one of the great things about camping, just people start talking. They start sharing. They're very comfortable with each other. They start sharing stories and talking about things. They're having this really relaxed, chilled out time around the campfire there, amen? And in Peter's mind, his mind went back and back and forth. I think he had flashbacks just a few nights before where he was at a different, cold, different fireplace, a wrong fireplace. He was at the devil's fireplace, and there he, he denied any association with Jesus three times. But now he's around this fire that's still brimming. Jesus is keeping the fire going. And Jesus has got these men just realizing, hey, listen, I love you guys. I'm going to restore you guys. I'm going to get you guys back in place. And then Peter turned to, Jesus turns to Peter. Would you notice verses 15 to 17? And Jesus speaks to him about his love for him. Now, leading up to verse 15, Jesus had restored Peter in his fellowship. Let me encourage you this morning, you're away from God, he can restore you in your fellowship. He restored Peter in his faith, he awakened his faith in verse 7. But now Jesus is working on his fervency. You see, fervency applies to your love for the Lord. In verse 15, would you notice it please? Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Publicly in front of his six peers... In an unmistakable tone, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? And he shut up. He didn't say anything else. He was quiet. And even though the scriptures doesn't suggest it, I imagine that Peter was a little bit uncomfortable that moment. In fact, not a little bit. I think it was very uncomfortable that moment. Because notice how he responded. Yay, Lord. It's kind of like we do. We know we get, we're put in a hard spot. We, because, yeah, 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 yeah. Yay, Lord. Thou knowest that I love thee. But I want you to understand something this morning. In the Bible, there's at least four different words that describe love. There's love what we understand, which we call eros love, which is fleshly love. You know, love a husband has for his wife. We have a, a word called storge. Storge talks about love that we have for our family. For me, I love it when I can get together with all my children and my little granddaughter. We love, we love that. You know, it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense of love that you have. It's a, it's a familial love that we have for family. There's the phileo love. And phileo love is a brotherly love that you find frequently mentioned in the Bible. He says, let brotherly kindness continue, Hebrews 13. It's a brotherly love we have for everyone in the room. It's caring for the body of Christ. But the highest form of love, which all of us have difficulty of getting our hearts and minds wrapped around, it's what's called agape love, or in this verse, agapeo love. And it's the highest form of love because it's loving like only God can love. And loving only like God can love is taking John 3.16 and Romans 5.8 and realizing it's sacrificial love that's unconditional, that loves us in spite of who we are and will do anything that's necessary to help restore us. And Peter, is, he's talking with Jesus. Jesus is using the word agapeo. He said, Peter, do you love me more than the world? Do you love me more than your money? Do you love me more than your friends? Do you love me more than your fishing? Do you love me more than anything else? Do you love me more than your family? Peter, do you love me more than yourself. Do you love me more than these? Now you stop for a minute. That's a pretty powerful question to ask somebody. And to ask in public to make a response. 
And Peter's feeling uncomfortable this first time. He says, well, yeah, Lord. Well, yeah, Lord. You know I love you. But Peter wasn't using agape love. Peter said, I love you like a friend, Jesus. He was using the word phileo. He said, Jesus, I love you just like a friend. Now, Jesus, Jesus wants to be your friend. And, and I get kind of this Christianity thing. Well, let Jesus be your best, best friend. He wants to be more than your best friend. He wants to be your God. And if he's your God, you can't get any closer than that. Amen? Get rid of this idea that God is too distant, too far away. You can't get connected. That's why he wants to be your God. Okay? And so he said, well, I love you just like a, my best friend. I love you like a friend, Jesus. And Jesus said, okay. He said, then Peter. Now, he didn't rebuke him for that. Hey, by the way, aren't you glad when Jesus restores us, he doesn't necessarily rebuke you. He's already done the rebuking. He's doing restoring right now. And so he's restoring him. He said, okay, Peter, that's fine. He said, feed my lambs. Now, remember Peter, as we, we, get to, we get to first and second Peter, we read something about where Peter's at many years later on things, but Peter was called to be a preacher, and P Peter was called to be an evangelist, and Peter was called to be a missionary, and Peter would be a pastor. Pastor, the word pastor that's used in the Bible, the, the Greek word is the word poimon or poimano, and it has the idea of feeding. We, we use it interchangeably with sheep, but with a shepherd. It means to someone who feeds the sheep, someone who takes responsibility for the sheep and leads them out and oversees them and feeds them. A pastor's responsibility is to feed the flock of God which is among them and taking the oversight thereof. And so he's talking to Peter. He says, Peter, now listen to me. I, I want to understand something. He says, I want you to feed my life. But he doesn't use the word poimon for feed. He's using a word which describes just being a common teacher. And as a common teacher, he's saying, now, Peter, here's what I want you to do. I want you to teach my young, immature, growing ones. He said, listen, there are many younger ones who are immature in the faith I want you to take responsibility for. So Jesus, Jesus is working with Peter, and he's trying to help him to gravitate. He's trying to grow him now at this moment in time. He's trying to grow him in grace. He's trying to grow him in responsibility. And so he says, feed my lambs. Well, he's not finished with, Pete, with Peter. And so Peter's getting, getting this command. And then secondly, Jesus is now Peter. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he asked him a second time. And Jesus used the word agapeo the second time as well. And Peter's feeling now really uncomfortable because now Jesus asked him a second time publicly, do you love me? And notice verse 17, verse 16. And he said, he, and Peter said to him, yea, Lord, Lord, you, you know I love you. You know I love you. But Peter's still using the word phileo. He's not using the word agapio. He's still using the word phileo. He's just saying, Lord, Jesus, you know I love you. Love you like a friend. But you notice what Jesus does here? He graduates the responsibility a little bit higher. He says, listen, I'm going to try to build you and having an ardent fervency. I'm trying to develop your heart and your love for me. He says, okay, Peter, here's what I want you to do. I want you to feed my sheep. And this time, the, the word feed he's using is the same word that we use in describing a pastor feeding the, the, feeding the flock. He's using the word poimon, the word for shepherd. He says, I want you to feed my sheep. He's talking about the entire congregation. Now, he's, he's, he's casting in his mind a vision of things to come. He's casting his mind a vision of pastoring the church at Jerusalem. And he's saying, listen, you don't even realize how big this church is going to be. But he says, you're going to have the responsibility with the other men, I'm going to want you to feed my sheep. And he always reminded me, he said, I want you to understand, they're my lambs, and they're my sheep, and they're my heritage, and they're my people. And he says, but I put you responsible to feed the flock of God, which is among us. And he's saying, you're going to be pastor there, and you need to protect the, you need to protect the flock from predators and from wolves that would come in with sheep's clothing, that would try to steal the lambs away and the flock away. He said, you need to feed them. You need to well instruct them. You need to motivate them. You need to stir them. You need to inspire them. He said, now, Peter, I, if you just let me like a friend. That's okay, but I still want you to feed. I want you to pastor over the entire flock. Well, he's not done with Peter yet. And Peter's feeling really uncomfortable because the first time he said, I love you like a friend. Second time he said, I love you like a friend. And Jesus comes to a third time. Look at verse 17. And third time, Jesus turns the tables on him because Jesus knew where he was at. And Jesus knew he needed to grow in grace. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And this third time, Jesus doesn't use the word agapeo. He uses the word phileo. He said, Peter, do you really love me even like a friend? And I want to ask you a question this morning because we need to close in a few moments. How much do you love Jesus? Do you sing more about loving him more than you love him? My Jesus, I love thee. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus enough that you'll be faithful to the church services? Do you love Jesus enough that you're burdened for your neighbors and your friends to get the gospel to them? 
Do you love Jesus enough? You'd say, Pastor Fong, Mrs. Fong, would you go with me to visit my lost family members and give the gospel to them? Do you love Jesus enough to take a stand for Jesus at your public school or at your work site and giving an invitation and telling somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus enough to read your Bible on public transportation unashamedly and let people know that you've got a Bible in your hand? Do you love Jesus enough that you pray in season and out of season? Do you love Jesus enough that you'll go to somebody you don't even know in the church and just put out your hand and say, hey, my name is Nicole. I want to meet you today. Do you love Jesus enough that you'll come and help us on a work day this week? Do you love Jesus enough that you see a spot on the floor and that you'll help me clean it up? Do you love Jesus enough you'll say, Pastor, wherever, you're, wherever work is needed and helpers are needed, I'll be there. Do you love Jesus enough that you'll just be there and you'll say whatever it takes? Do you love Jesus enough that you, that you wonder why you're not growing in the faith, that you would enroll in a discipleship class on Wednesday nights and get starting to grow in the faith and learn what assurance of salvation is and learn how we got our Bible and learn what the church is all about and learn what it means to have a daily walk with God and learn how to have an evangelistic heart and learn who our spiritual enemy is and learn what it is, what a biblical family is all about. I mean, I'm just saying today, do you love Jesus enough that you care about those things? And Jesus is talking to Peter. He says, Peter, now do you really love me? And Jesus is getting to Peter. He says, Peter, here's what I want you to understand. Peter, I don't want you just loving me like a friend. Peter, I want all of your love. I want an exclusive love. I want to know that I'm not competing for your heart. I want to know that I'm not competing for your, your desire. Listen, this morning, too many of us have grown in a 20th century, in a 21st century world where everything's competing for your affections, and everything's competing for your heart, and you feel like you're spread out thin. I've got the Raiders game here, and the 49ers game here. I've got the Oakland A's here, and I've got the Golden State Warriors here. I've got shopping here, and the family buffet there, and I've got all these things. Hey, how about before we put all those things ahead of that, why don't we ask the question, what does Jesus want me to do? You want to show you love me, Peter? Get all the way back into the ministry. You want to show you love me, Peter? Get way back in the ministry. Get back to what you're doing. I want to talk to Sunday school teachers for just a moment. If you're teaching in this church, you teach with all your heart. Amen? You put 110% of what you're teaching. You love, that, you love that class just like I would love that class in there. And I want you to have a heart for those people. I want you to have a heart for them. But I'm telling you today, listen, too much of our love is spread out too thin. Listen, in your marriage, if you have a marriage where your love is spread out too thin, it's time to recalibrate and realize we need to have an exclusive love. Listen, when you're ardent in your fervency, you're exclusive in your love. When you're ardent in your fervency, you're extraordinary in your labor. But notice something else there. When you're, when you're ardent in your fervency... You're exceptional in your loyalty. Loyalty is an undivided commitment. A member of a local New Testament church demonstrates their loyalty by being undivided in their commitment. Let me tell you something today. No, I don't care where you, whatever you learn, you can only be a member of one local New Testament church. You can't be members of 25 churches. There's no, we don't hold to a universal church theory. We hold to a local church, biblical local church doctrine. And if you're married, your husband doesn't want to know that you've got other boyfriends. And if you're, your wife doesn't want to know that you've got other boyfriends and girlfriends, all that stuff, none of that. So, Pete, so Peter, Peter, he's talking to Peter. He said, now, Peter, I want you to understand this. Look at verse 18. He said, first of all, Peter, you need to learn that except your loyalty gives deference. And he said, Peter, now, verse 18, he says, now, let me tell you something. He says, when you were younger, when thou was young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. He's saying, you know, Peter, right now where you're at in life, you're a, you're a sturdy young man. You did whatever you want to do. You know, people get very defined. They say, I'm going to do what I want to do. I said, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Okay, go ahead. And he said, Peter, you used to, you know, when you were younger, you did that. You just said, you know, and that's how you, he was at right then. He says, I would just do what I want to do. He said, I go fishing. He jumped in the water and he, just, he jumped in the boat and he says, let's go, guys. And that characterizes a lot of our Christianity because our Christianity is so shallow. We, we tell Jesus we love him, but we do what we want to do instead of saying, what would you have me to do, Lord? And then he goes on by saying, verse 18, but when thou shalt be old. He says, now, I want you to learn, Peter, if you mean what you said, you're going to feed my lambs, you're going to feed my sheep. When you're older, he says, you should stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whithersoever thou wouldest. Now, what's he saying there? He said, Peter, there's a time coming. You're going to learn 
absolute deference. The best way we describe loyalty to Christ is in our submission. If you love me, keep my commandments. Amen? If you love me, keep my commandments. And if we're not keeping his commandments, our submission could be held in question. Exceptional loyalty is seen in our deference, our submission. I said this last week. One of the things I believe the Lord is going to test at the judgment seat of Christ, as far as the believer's works, is the believer's submission. And then would you notice something else about loyalty here? The first thing Jesus did, he showed him that exceptional loyalty gives deference. But the second thing he showed him, exceptional loyalty is devoted. And there in verse 18, of course, Jesus is talking about that how Peter would die. And Peter would reference about in 2 Peter chapter 1 about that he knew that his time was coming, that he would die. And, and, and tradition tells us that Peter was crucified. And he said, Lord, if I'm going to be crucified, I don't want to die like my Lord did. I, I want you to crucify me upside down. And tradition tells us that's what happened to him. The Bible says in verse 19, This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Now, Jesus said all that. He didn't ask for Peter's opinion on it. And by the way, when God gives us a command, God gives instruction, he doesn't want our opinion. He wants our submission. The Word of God is not for debate. The Word of God is for obedience. And so in verse 19, he says, I just want you to know, Peter, as you're going to get older, I want you to understand that you're going to get closer to me and closer to me, but the closer you get to me, the more the rest of the world is not going to understand it. You're going to have to die for me. Now, Peter, look where he's at now. Now, verse 19, he, after he said that, he looks at him and he said, I, I want you to understand what, that all, all this is going to happen so you glorify me. And then he makes two words, a two-word statement to, to Peter. It's so simple. Peter, follow me. Now, Peter's having deja vu again. Because that takes him back to John 4, 19. Give me Matthew 4, 19. When he got called into the ministry, he was out fishing. He'd come back from fishing. He was cleaning his nets with his brother Andrew. And Jesus looked at them. He stopped right in front of their boat. I mean, that's pretty cool. Jesus came right to their boat. He said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And, he's this, and this, this, commit, this commissioning that he got in Matthew 4.19 is recycling in his mind now and is burning in his heart. Remember, I'm talking about an ardent fervency he's having for the Lord. And Jesus said, follow me. Just follow me. Whatever I do, I, you do. Whatever I say, I want you to say. When I want you to be quiet, be quiet. When I want you to listen, I want you to listen. He said, follow me. But Peter's distracted, like we are. And Peter's so distracted, he's looking at John. He said, well, Lord, if I'm going to die a death like that, what about John? What, what's going to happen to John? Because John was his best friend. You know how we are. We're busybodies. We worry about what our, what's going to happen with our friends. We think about, well, is, is, is he going to get something better than me? Or the, are, are they, is he going to get preferential treatment? And, and, you know, he's worried about what's going on with John. And a lot of times we're like that. We worry about what somebody else is going to do. We, we, we get into this, this favoritism mindset. We say, well, are you sure more favoritism to him than you are to me? And all that kind of stuff. And we get caught up with those different things because we have insecurity that have not died to self. And Jesus, look what he says to Peter about devotion. He says, look, verse 21. He asks the question, verse 21, Lord, what shall this man do? And Jesus said to him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. He said, you know what? Whatever my will is for your life, might be different from John's, what my will is for John's life, and what my will is for John's life, that's what it is for that. But he says, what is that to you? Why are you worrying about what my will is for John's life? What you need to worry about is you need to follow me. And here's the thing. People quit church. People walk away from God. People leave their Bible. They leave prayer. They get disgruntled. They get disillusioned about things. I'm almost done. They get, this, they get that way because they're worrying about what somebody else said, what somebody else is doing. It looks like God is showing preferential treatment. And you've forgotten God loves you because the sun rises and the sun sets, but God still loves you. And that doesn't change God's love for you. And because God loves you, he's saying, why are you worrying about what this person's doing or what they said and what's going on? Why don't you just do this? You follow me. He's saying, Peter, now here's what I want you to know. Accept your loyalty means you must give deference, but accept your loyalty means you must give complete, total devotion. Just keep your eyes on me. Peter's revived. He's awakened his faith. Peter's recommissioned. Jesus told him everything he needed to know. Get right back into the ministry. 
Would you notice as we close? Jesus has touched his faith. Jesus has touched his fervency. Jesus has touched his future. Where are you going to spend the rest of your life? The past or in the future? Answer me. Where are you going to spend the rest of your life? Past or future? It's a no-brainer. Come on, everyone should get 100% on that. Amen? But a lot of us are so overcome by our past. We're living the past in the future. (laughs) Do you know you're not going anywhere like that? Yeah, the past. By the way, come back tonight. I'm going to talk about Israel's painful history. Yet the Bible says, yet they have not prevailed. Peter's been recommissioned. He's been revived. Now I want you to fast forward with me from here. There would be 40 days of very intense training Jesus would do with Peter and the men. And I want you to understand the future in Peter's life as Jesus Christ sovereign, because we've got the whole revelation. Peter watched it unfold in his life. Peter became a great evangelist because on the day of Pentecost, it was Peter who stood up and Peter who preached the gospel and 3,000 hardened, law-struck Jews were converted that morning. Listen, that was probably the hardest group of people to preach to of all of the, of all of the ages. And Peter preached them. These were the same people that said, crucify Jesus Christ. Peter preached there and Peter rose up to be a great evangelist of his day. Peter went on. The church of Jerusalem had started with 120. Now they've had 3,000 attitude. You get to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. They had, to have a, they had to have a pastor. And I believe at that moment of time, for a period of time, Peter was the pastor for a period of time. Then they transitioned the pastor from Peter over to, over to James. And, but Peter pastored that congregation. And he was a great pastor. In fact, he was so great, he gives some of the best instruction for pastors found in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, I'm an elder, you're an elder. He says, I'm a witness of, the part, of Christ, and I'm a partaker of his glory. And he says, he told all the pastors he's writing to in 1 Peter chapter 5, he said, feed the flock of God which is among us, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint nor for filthy lucre, but of a willing mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but examples to the flock. And he says, when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory. And he said, he was instructing pastors to stay faithful to the work and feeding the flock of God and anticipating the great crown that God will give to pastors who are faithful by the word of God. And Peter was learning something here. He was realizing the importance and the responsibility of being a good pastor. And listen, Peter not only grew as an evangelist, and Peter not only grew as a pastor, Peter grew as a missionary because later on he would be thrust out. And Peter would be the one that would bring the gospel to the Gentiles there over in, in Matthew, Acts chapter 10. And he went there to Caesarea and brought the gospel to a Gentile, a Gentile man by the name of Cornelius, a man who was Italian by, by background and brought that man to Christ. And Peter went on to do great things. He was a stabilizer of the faith and he boldly proclaimed the truth of God's word. I mean, when you look at everything about Peter's life, Jesus told him, feed my lambs and feed my sheep and feed my sheep. And he said, just follow me. Peter did all of that and much more. Why? Because Peter had an abounding future. And the future you and I have, when you get restored, when you get revived, and you get recommissioned, hey, it's nothing but uphill for Jesus Christ. Amen. God wants to use you. You have purpose and value in the work of God. God wants to use you. God has a place for you. God wants you to get all the way in. God wants you to realize today, you don't have to live in language like Peter did and go off on some other track and try to find another career. Listen, you've got a God who loves you and you've got a God who cares for you and you've got a God who's already laid out the plan. He's got it all orchestrated. We just need to get involved and get back to the place of getting re-energized and recommissioned and revived and then getting out and following the Lord, whatever he wants us to do. Out of the Florida Everglades, behind the back of a house, this family had, they were facing, they're right near the Everglade waters. A little boy had gone swimming in that water many times before. He's a good swimmer. That morning, he told his mom, Mom, I just feel like I want to go for a morning swim. And he got his swimming shorts and took off his shoes and socks and jumped right in the water and started swimming. Mother was washing her dishes, and Normie would not pay attention. She looked out the kitchen window, which looked right out into the water. And as her son was making his way towards the middle, and he was going to come back, he just made his way to turn back. She saw a stealthy movement in the water. She recognized, that's, a, that's an Everglade alligator following my son. 
And she recognized that alligator was moving in very quickly. It targeted her son. He, she knew that meant bad things. And so immediately that mother ran out, and she ran out to the shoreline, and she got on top of the, of, of the pier there, and she started shouting to her son. She said, Billy, Billy, you better run. You better swim as hard as you can. There's an alligator right behind you. Billy, Billy, you better get out there as soon as you can. Get out of that water. Come on, Billy, you better swim. And she's frantic. She's calling to Billy. She says, get out of there. And as soon as the boy got close up, she put her arms out, and she grabbed her boy. But as she did so, the alligator moved in with, with, with very quick speed and latched onto his legs. What seemed like hours and long moments, there was a tug of war between that mother and that alligator for her son. The alligator torn his legs and just was holding him and trying to do the death, the, duet, the death twirl that they do. The mother held on. I mean, her fingernails and her fingers got in that boy's arms and held on him very tightly. Somehow with superhuman strength. The mother just kept holding on. All this commotion, splash of water. One of the neighbors came out and he saw what was going on. He grabbed a 308 rifle and he aimed it at that alligator. And one shot, he killed that alligator. The alligator let go of his clutch. The mother was holding on so strongly to her son, she pulled the son up and pulled him next to her. They called 911 and had the emergency response people come and take the boy to the emergency room. I mean, his legs were a mess, bleeding from his legs, bleeding from his arms. After a few days, the boy was recovering, but he had all these scars on him. The local newspaper wanted to write an article about that. They went to the little boy, and they said, little boy, you show me your scars? Let me see your legs. Look at his pant legs, and they were all bandaged up. He says, sir, I can't show you much. I mean, that's, I've got scars everywhere. I've got bite marks, tears, some torn muscles. But he said, that's not what I want you to see. He rolled up his sleeves. He said, I want you to look at this. And he showed the scars where his mother held on to him. He said, I'm not proud of these scars, but I'm proud of these scars. Mom let go, held on to me with an everlasting love. He says, she was determined not to let me go. Can I tell you something? You're in a tug of war where the devil's trying to pull you under. He's got his teeth latch on, and he's tearing, ripping away, and trying to keep away from him. But I want to tell you, we have a God with an everlasting love. He's holding on to you, and he's not going to let you go. Aren't you glad about that this morning? And to the unsaved here today, the question I want to ask you is, where will you be when you leave this life? God wants you to go to heaven. Peter, when he wrote 1 Peter, he went on to be a great prolific writer of the Scriptures. Peter said this, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. When you get to the end, are you going to heaven? If you're not, I've got good news for you. You can. Because leading up to that, Peter said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, to an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, which are kept by the power of God through faith, ready to be revealed until last time. What's that all saying? Listen, you know you're a sinner. You need to be forgiven of your sins, but you must come before God, repent of your sins, you must tell God you repent of your sins and by faith accept and believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again from the dead. And by, by faith, I, I repent of my sins and I take Jesus Christ right now to be my Savior. Listen, that is the conclusion where God wants you to be this morning before you leave today. If you're not sure you're going to heaven, we invite you today. Make sure of that today and be born into the family of God today that you may receive the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. Are you saved today? I encourage you this morning, come to Christ. Are you someone languishing out there? Why don't you come home to Jesus, amen? Come back to God. Let him revive you. Let him recommission you. Let him restore you. Let him do for you as he did for, for Peter. He gave him an awakened faith, an ardent fervor. He gave him an abounding future. He can do the same thing for you as he did for Peter.